I don't know if you have a bucket list, but if you do, there's a little road that I want to recommend you add to it. The road is quite old, long, and narrow. It runs parallel to the Asequia Madre, an aqueduct dating back to 1689. Follow Canyon Road, located on the outskirts of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and ultimately it will lead you into the Sangre de Cristo mountain range before it does. It will lead you to one of the most intriguing artist colonies in our land. The theory is that artists were drawn to this part of the world in the 1920s when the artist Olive Rush led a charge to bring artists together to a land filled with beauty, the beauty of an old Spanish city. Over the years, what began as a dozen art studios has blossomed into a haven for those who appreciate artistic expression. For myself, the experience of walking this street, Canyon Road, became somewhat spiritual the minute I walked into the studio of an artist who specializes in the artistic representation of angels. I will simply tell you that the moment I walked through the door of this studio, I froze, my eyes fixed on him. Who is this? I asked the artist, wondering if the figure before me, the angel, had a name. The piece was large. It was luminous. It was literally soul-gripping. What I learned was the artist was a student of Hebraic literature around the subject of angelology. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but speaking comparatively, there's a significant difference between our Western representation of angels and that found within Jewish theology. In the West, angels are often treated with a romantic spirit. Artists represent them as chubby creatures who exude love. We see them inhabiting Valentine's Day boxes, chocolate. Oh, there's some who paint a deeper picture. Uh, in the first church that I served in Wisconsin, there was a classic picture of an angel providing protection for two children walking across a rather shaky, sketchy bridge. First rendered by the artist Lindbergh, the painting was copyrighted by Laura Sotka, who distributed it widely. Maybe you've seen the picture. What I appreciate about, about it is its depth. Yet, few Western artists capture the kind of depth expressed about angels within Jewish writings. For the Jews, the Bible is the starting point for understanding angels. And if I might say, angels in the Bible are anything but chubby beings inhabiting Valentine's Day cards. In the Bible, angels are guardians, warriors, and protectors, which is what I appreciate about this angel, the one hanging at the studio in Santa Fe. Intentionally, the artist did not give the angel a name, choosing instead to focus on its posture. In the painting, it's clear that the angel is one of many, yet being addressed in a very personal way. God is speaking not to all the angels, but to this one specific angel. He is calling this angel's name. When I asked the artist, he was quick to explain. I've tried to capture, he said, this exact moment in the heavenly realm when God has called an angel, this angel, on assignment. The angel is slightly turned as if they've received this assignment, this calling, and are turning towards the accomplishment of the call. What caused me to pause, literally freeze at the sight of the angel, was a question. 
to what or to whom has God called this angel to serve? Have you ever wondered that? How many times God has assigned one or more of his angels to you? The writer of Hebrews chapter 13, 2 tells us that there'll be many times in our lives when we unknowingly interact with angels. And I, for one, believe it. I've often wondered myself in what times of need was I even aware of it? Did God assign one of his warrior protectors to me? The reality is we'll never know. But there are things that we can know about angels. In today's episode of God Says Living, we're going to resume our look at the last chapter in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. It's here, of course, that we meet not just any angel, but the great archangel, Michael. As we turn to this section, I want to focus on four words that are used to describe Michael's actions. Chapter 12, verse 1, the book is Daniel, reads as follows, Lord, give us insight, we pray, quote, at that time shall arise, Michael. I want to ask several questions today. What conditions occur in the last time that require God's assignment of Michael and his Sabbath army of angels? Question two, what's meant by the phrase shall arise? What does it say, Michael, shall arise? Number three, is there a connection possibly between what is described by Daniel here and what the Bible means when it talks about the binding of Satan and the fallen angels. So one of the things that got me thinking a little bit about these questions is a book written by a man named Joshua Howard. The book is titled The Exorcism of Satan. If you allow me to pay a little homage today, just yesterday the death of director William Friedman was announced. You may recognize him as the film director associated with the movie, The Exorcist. In a previous podcast, I shared with you that it was a professor of mine in seminary who took part in an actual exorcism, the actual exorcism upon which this movie was loosely based. It's that same professor from whom I've learned a great deal about exorcisms, both from a historical perspective, i.e. how they were understood and performed in the ancient church, and what we have learned about exorcisms today in our modern context. What I'm convinced of are two fundamental things. One, I'm convinced that for the most part, people both within and outside the church have very little understanding of, of exorcisms or an acceptance of their veracity outside of the church. They act of exorcism is seen predominantly as the stuff of movies, scary, but not real. Inside the church, there's more acceptance of the idea of demonic possession, yet as the church becomes more and more secular in this age, even among the so-called faithful, exorcism holds a dubious place. Not so the biblical scriptures. When you read the Bible, there is zero, as in no doubt, but that fallen angels, of which Lucifer is chief, are real. Their ability to deceive, to tempt, to oppress and possess are real. But so is the power exercised over those angels bearing the name of Jesus Christ, Satan's conqueror. I think this is what makes Howard's book relevant in it. He's recognizing the now and not yet nature of the ongoing battle that exists within the triangle defined by one, Jesus and his angels, two, Lucifer and his angels, and three, human beings, both those who formed the body of Christ and those outside of it. Pointing to the Revelation chapter 12, Howard notes that within the Bible's dimension of time, 
a great war took place in the heavens between God and Lucifer. Of course, Lucifer supporting angels and the Sabbath army angels loyal to God were also involved in this battle. The Revelation chapter 12 specifically mentions the very angel that Daniel speaks to here in chapter 12, verse 1. Michael, as chief in that battle, a battle in which Satan and his demons were overcome. Just remember these words with me. Now a war rose in heaven, the Revelation tells us. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Not needing a lot of explanation, now, these words point to what theologians call the now nature of our victory in Jesus. They indicate that the outcome of the heavenly war has been decided. We live in the now of God's defeat of Lucifer and his demons. He was exercised from heaven, cast out. We might say this is the first exorcist film ever conducted. It took place in heaven, and it's described here. That said, we also find ourselves at the same time having to live our lives out in what we call the not-yetness of this world. Again, Revelation chapter 12 is helpful. Here John tells us, quote, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The not yet nature of God's victory over Satan lay in his, Satan's, permissioned ability to tempt, deceive, oppress, and finally possess. So we might say it this way. While the war has been won, its outcome is not in question. Jesus has defeated Satan. There still are individual battles taking place at a personal level every day. And there will be until the day of resurrection. At the individual level, the battle is with you and me. And it's in every way a battle about our souls. Here's what makes that scary. When I stop and think about my ability to overcome even a single fallen angel demon, I come up with this number, zero. I can't do it. When we read Revelation 12, we find ourselves wondering, so, so what am I supposed to do? Thrown down to the earth to make war. I can't overcome this foe. This is where Daniel's reminder becomes significant. You don't need to overcome the enemy. God will. There are two ideas helpful here. The binding of Satan and the assignment of angels. First is that biblical concept of Satan and his angels being bound. In the Gospels, Jesus points to this. Remember that his critics, the Sanhedrin, were accusing him of doing miracles by calling upon demonic forces. Jesus scoffs at them and sets in front of them a metaphor. Remember what he says. Just remember these words. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? I always love these words and the theology they paint. What Luke is describing is the fact that when Satan and his angels were cast down to earth, they were permissioned, yes, to tempt, oppress, possess, deceive, but they were also bound. Simply stated, Jesus, who by virtue of his defeat of Lucifer, 
has authority over him, has used that authority to limit the extent to which Lucifer and his angels can do their work. Pointedly, there are things they cannot do. A demon, for example, does not have permission. They are bound to possess a person in whom the Spirit of God lives. If the Spirit of God is living in you, angels are not permissioned to possess you. A demon cannot directly cause physical harm to a person. Notice that in possession, the demon works with individuals to cause they themselves to do harm to themselves and to others. By the way, if I can say this, I believe that this is a significant cause of the phenomenal number of shootings that we're seeing in our country today. I know we want to point to mental illness as the cause. Certainly mental illness is involved. But I believe that demonic possession is very real. Satan, demons, will possess individuals whom they use to kill others. They can do that within their binding. Finally, a demon is bound in the sense that they, can't, they cannot personally and in a first cause way kill a person. But through the oppression and possession of a person, they can use that person to kill another. So permission me to take this a little bit further, to connect us back to Daniel's words as they relate to Michael. I'm going to begin with a question. In the last time, what we've previously called in our podcast, the half a time, do the conditions of binding, the binding of Lucifer and his angels change? Understand. Lucifer and his angels are and will remain bound until the very end. However, do the conditions of binding change? Here it's significant to know the description given in the Revelation chapter 9 verses 1 to 21. Remember with me, John is helping believers understand the end times through the vivid imagery of trumpets that are being blown. There are seven trumpets. That will be blown, each pointing to the increase of hell on earth that will lead us into the half a time and eventually to Armageddon at the very end. Again, I think about this every time someone says to me, is it my imagination or are people getting worse and worse? <laughs> well, as the fifth trumpet blows in chapter 9, we see the activity of demons within the time frame that we're currently living in. They're bound, but they're still permissioned to tempt, deceive, oppress, and possess. That they cannot kill is expressly stated in verse 5. Listen to these words. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Now, as the sixth trumpet is blown, I want you to notice this. The condition of binding changes. Listen to these words, verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released, now listen to these words, to kill a third of mankind. Mm. When you read these two verses side by side, the change in condition becomes pretty obvious. During the five-month period, 
I, I say it simply like this, the time period that we're living in today. Lucifer and the fallen angels that we call demons have power, no doubt about that, to deceive, tempt, oppress, possess, but they're bound, including in their binding the limitation upon directly being able to do physical harm. They cannot kill human beings. This changes with the blowing of the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet signals the beginning of what we, based on the revelation, have called the half a time. This period of history has yet to commence, and when it does, as we looked at in last week's podcast, it will be with a catastrophic event that will undermine men's security and all this world has to offer. Now, as we read Revelation 6.13, notice that at the beginning of this last period of time, we know that, that God has already determined down, down to the minute and second its beginning. These words are important. John writes, the time has been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. As the time begins, notice the unbinding that occurs. Again, the scripture says, release the four angels. They're fallen angels. They're demons who have been bound at the great river Euphrates. And they were released to kill one third of mankind. The conditions of binding have now changed. Lucifer and the fallen angels are still under the authority of God. They're still bound, but the conditions of the binding have now changed. The demonic army is now permission to kill men. By the way, if you find these words to be a bit sobering, you're not alone. You should. When you read about what the Bible calls the half a time, you can't help but be sober. In fact, it's what Peter calls us to do. First Peter 5, 8, 9. Be alert. Be sober-minded. Why? Your enemy seeking to devour you. What this means for me today, it has to do with souls. It's a constant prayer of mine. Lord, please help me to stay focused. So easy in our world today, including the world of church, to get so caught up in culture that we forget that this battle is going on in me and around me. And that battle is for souls. While there are numerous battlefronts today, i.e. what's happening in the arena of abortion, what's happening in the arena of pornography where access and is easy and instantaneous. What's happening in the arena of politics, where I'm convinced many antichrists are engaged. What's happening in the world of understanding gender. What's happening in the world of LGBTQT+. All of these battlefronts. I could go on. There's so many of them. But in the end, the most significant battle is for the souls of human beings created by God. What we must be aware of is the fact that things are not simply going to get better. No. What the Bible is telling us is they're going to get worse, harder. The battle will become more intense. And in the last period of time, it will be so bad, many will want to leave this world, go home, die. This is exactly what God is telling Daniel. He's saying, Daniel, in the last period, I'm going to be assigning a lot of my angels to people. I'll tell you why. Because in the last period, some unbinding is going to take place. Demons will be given more authority than they have today. They will be allowed to kill. Understanding this, the words that God speaks to Daniel at the beginning of this last chapter make a lot more sense. Listen to them again. Jesus says to Daniel, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there were a people to that time. We talked about this last week. The last period of history on earth will be unlike any generation to this date has ever experienced. We said it this way, 
people's very lives will be shaken to the core. Now, the words that Daniel are spoken to Daniel begin to make sense. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. We need this. There's no way that the church on earth in the last period of history can battle our enemy apart from divine intervention. Unless there is someone who fights for us, we cannot overcome. That said, we have two weapons at hand. The Word of God. Number one, the Word of God. Trust it. Trust that the Word today is able to accomplish salvation in the lives of others. Paul says it, Romans 1, 16 to 28, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Know this. Our enemy is bound when it comes to the Word. He cannot overcome it. He can seek to people, keep people away from it. He can, as he does today, deceive people to reinterpret it. He can mock it, but he cannot overcome it. So important for us to get this. The word is a weapon in the battle for souls, and it will be, even into this last period of history. Number two, weapon number two, angels. Can I take you back inside that little studio in Santa Fe? Look at the painting with me one more time. The artist says to me, this picture represents an angel at that very moment when God is instructing it to serve the needs of someone. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. We need it, don't we? We need angels, heavenly beings who behind the curtain fight for us. As we wrap up today, here's what's on my heart, on my mind. A couple of questions. Question one. Do you think it's okay to ask God specifically to send an angel or angels? I've always loved it that the reformer Martin Luther includes these words in his morning prayer. Quote, Father, let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. So question two, when's the last time you asked? I don't pretend to know everything going on in your life right now, but I, I do know this. It includes the unseen battle. It includes the battle behind the curtain. There are demons who mean you harm. Demons at work every day, seeking within the confines of their bounding to remove your soul from eternity. When's the last time you simply prayed? Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Lastly, and this might seem a bit esoteric, I'll risk putting it out there despite the fact. When is the last time you simply in awe thank God for his angel warriors. I want to use that word all intentionally because that's what Daniel 12 does for me. It leaves me in that place where I become aware of a battle taking place for my soul. We don't have access to see that battle. We can't see behind the curtain. If we, if we could, I'm convinced we would be terrified beyond comprehension. Instead, as I read Daniel's words today, I find myself in awe of a God who is so present in our lives. He's fighting for us. His Sabbath army is fighting for us, and for this we give thanks. Well, that's it for this week. I want to thank you again for joining me on this podcast. I want to tell you that I, uh, especially in light of our world today, continue to pray for you and your family, ask you to pray for me and pray for my family. Uh, we'll get at it again next week, and until then, I wish you a God-sized week. <music>